Welcome to Oomph. Oomph is the official podcast of the West Virginia Injury Control Research Center, an informal discussion with injury control researchers to help our listeners think about this topic in a brand new way. Today I'm joined by a team, really, of people. This room has more people in it than I've, I've ever seen before to talk about a mindfulness-based project, and I'm going to let everyone introduce themselves. I'll start, as usual, with, with Dan, who's to my left today in a lovely shade of pink. Uh, it's Peach. Oh, uh, Peach. Uh, thank you, Rob. Uh, my name is Dan Shook. I'm the director of the uh, Mountain Safe program, which is the outreach program for the Injury Control Research Center. My name is Keith Zulig. I'm a professor in the Department of Social Behavioral Sciences and one of the co-investigators on the project here that we're gonna talk about. My name is Laura Lander, and I'm social work faculty in the Department of Behavioral Medicine and Psychiatry, and also co-investigator on the mindfulness study. My name is Megan Toscano, and I'm a second-year MPH student at the School of Public Health at WVU, and I've been a student worker on this project. Hello, everyone. I have to ask, who are the people behind us? Are there other people in the room? They are um, Jean Capstone. Oh, hi, Capstone people. Welcome. So <laughs> I asked the wrong person, but I got an answer, so thank you. So. Keith, Laura, Megan, thanks for joining us. What would you like to talk about today? What are you going to tell us? How are you going to make me smarter? Oh, that's a pause. That's really bad. (laughs) That's a way of saying, can you tell us a little bit about your project? Absolutely. So feel free to hop in whenever. Um, Our project is uh, run out of the Comprehensive Opioid Addiction Treatment Program at WVU. And we are working with individuals who are suffering from opioid use disorder. And our study is a quasi-experimental study. And um, we are running the intervention with uh, people self-select into the intervention or comparison groups. And we run um, the innovative thing that we're trying to do is to investigate whether mindfulness can be um, as effective as it's been shown to be in other I guess, areas in a naturalistic outpatient setting. So we're doing every other week for 60 weeks, or sorry, for, for 60 minutes over 24 weeks, which hasn't been done before. So this is a mindful, mindfulness-based Relapse prevention. Yeah, it's, to an existing program. So people in the co-program won't have their treatment modified in any way, then this will be added onto it. Actually, they, folks who self-select into the mindfulness receive mindfulness only. And so um, we, have, we have done some pilot work where it was as an adjunct, but now they're just receiving mindfulness only for the 24-week period. And the reason that this came about is because obviously we have a opioid crisis in the state of West Virginia, as we all hear about on a regular basis. Um, and the overdose rates continue to climb, so treatment, medication-assisted treatment is, is what we provide through the Coke Clinic. It, doesn't, it has not typically worked for everyone, um, and so we were trying to figure out ways to improve it for people that it wasn't working for. And, and oftentimes those are people with co- co-occurring disorders, so people who have both substance use disorders as well as depression or anxiety or other kinds of mood disorders. And so mindfulness-based relapse prevention really targets some of those mental health issues that can make getting well um, and recovering from substance use disorders more difficult. So we, we hear a lot about mindfulness. This is actually the second podcast we will have done that includes some discussion of mindfulness. It seems to be becoming a WVU thing, which is nice. Can you tell us just very quickly what your intervention looks like or what you ask the participants to do? So I, one of the things I like to say about mindfulness is 
people are like, oh, you need to clear your mind. You need to think about nothing. You need to say om a lot and sit and you know, cross-legged on the floor. Um, mindfulness is simply about being aware and not judging yourself. Those are the two main components of mindfulness. And when you think about individuals who struggle with substance use disorders, oftentimes they've spent a tremendous amount of time trying not to be aware, trying to numb. Um, and then they judge themselves for it. So this is actually a skill that is really relevant to their recovery. Um, they, the, the intervention itself focuses on reducing craving, because these are all folks who are struggling with cravings for substances, um, and it's very experiential. So it's not sitting around in the room talking about how your week was. It is practicing mindfulness interventions such as guided imagery or meditation or simply being aware of your physical self or what your mind is doing in any given moment. So I think it's fascinating that they self-select into it. To the people who self-select into it, you said that this may work when other therapeutic approaches or treatments haven't worked. Have they tried medication-assisted treatment before and failed? Is it, are these people who've had issues with relapse and, and multiple attempts at treatment who are now looking for something different? Some of them have. The, the folks, to be eligible, they have to have 90 days of consecutive, 90 consecutive days of sobriety. So these are, they've been in the program for a little while. And some people really like talk therapy, and some people really don't, or they've been in multiple treatments before, and they're like all done with talk therapy. They're bored of it, and they've, they're all talked out. And so this is, is another opportunity to, for growth, uh, where they don't actually have to sit around and talk about what's happening. So why do we think this is going to work? Why, why, why mindfulness when other strategies have not worked for these folks? There's a fair amount of evidence um, looking at mindfulness-based treatments. They help with chronic pain, they help with sleep, they help with anxiety disorders and depression and PTSD. Um, it's not been applied to the co-occurring disorder population as much. Um, but there's evidence certainly to suggest that it helps with mental health disorders and there's mindfulness-based relapse prevention obviously has some evidence behind it with regard to individuals who use substances. And it, I, this is going to be a naive question. So I'm an epidemiologist. It's, I, I'm allowed to ask naive questions, I think, when it comes to psychotherapy. So what, what do we think it is about mindfulness that works here? What, why, why, why would it work with this uh, specific population, and why would it be well-suited for co-occurring disorders? I mean, I think specifically because one of the things that people seek to achieve with the use of substances, in addition to feeling good or not feeling bad, um, is to numb. And so people are very disconnected from their physical and, and emotional self, and this reconnects them. Um, and then they also... They also need to, to, it helps with kind of gaining a sense of self-awareness, uh, which, which often people have lost and, and are not even thinking about when they enter into treatment. The, the judgment part must be tough, right? So if you're trying not to judge yourself in something that's so heavily stigmatized in our community and society, and there are so many, we tend to personalize substance use, particularly opioid use, right? It was the individual's choice. They got themselves in this, and I'm sure that, people internalize some of that as well and begin blaming themselves for the situation, potentially. Yeah, I mean, the first yeah. step is people aren't even aware that they're judging themselves. I mean, right. they're aware that other people are judging them, but they aren't aware of, of really the, the self-judgment, and this, this helps with that awareness. And so that's a component of this, this intervention, is to help them be aware of what they might be judging themselves on and what the potential negative impacts of that are going to be. Absolutely. Oh, I can ask my one question now. <laughs> 
Yes, but keep it short. Yeah, I guess I've been limited but only one question. I'm sorry to my followers out there. Um, um, I think what you're doing is really pretty cool. I, I gotta say, I grew up in Boulder, Colorado in the 60s, and this kind of talk I thought was crazy talk even back then with Rolfing and all the other stuff that they do. And it was a nurse about 20 or 30 years ago at a healthcare system in Ohio that was trying to bring mindfulness to, you know, the employees. And again, I thought it was just a bunch of, you know, poo. But, you know, now, you know, at, at the, uh, over 60, this, this is really pretty darn neat stuff that, that, that I even tried to practice you know, every day with some of the issues and the things that I'm dealing with, uh, eating, for example, is the mindless eating uh, to, to reduce stress. Now, now this is my, my question. Um, being an exercise physiologist, I like to see pictures of things and chemicals to see if things actually change when you, you do something like this. Have, have, are there any studies that show like changes in your brain through like neuroscans and things like that, that people go through mindfulness training that there's your, your brain is remodeling or changing or doing something to uh, in response to your mindfulness. And keep in mind, none of us are neuroscientists here. So we, I, Laura may know a little bit more than I do, but we understand from previous research that the white matter in your brain is considered good aspects of your brain. And mindfulness has been shown to increase white matter in your brain in previous research. Now, for a pilot study that we did, we were attempting to do MRI scans here at West Virginia University. Um, we didn't have a large enough sample size, but the folks that we were working with would tell you that we were trending in the right direction uh, in terms of you know mirroring some of those previous findings in terms of the brain. I'm gonna ask two questions. I'm sorry, you've reached your limit. <laughs> uh, uh, I didn't hear that. Uh, how long? Does a, like a, a mindful session, uh, you know, uh, you know, take when you're working with the subjects that you're working with right now? Does it start off a short period of time and extend, or is there a certain, you know, duration that you use in order to, to see if it's effective or not? Like a dose response. So the the group sessions are 60 minutes, but people are encouraged to practice on their own during the in-between sessions. And, and those gradually increase because people often really struggle with how to do mindfulness correctly. And as I said, the only way to do it is to be aware and to not judge yourself. And if you are judging yourself, just be aware that you're judging yourself. And so it's um, once you simplify it, most people can really do that. Um, but sometimes it's hard for people to find the time and the space to develop a practice. And so we encourage people just five minutes a day or five minutes every other day and then gradually increasing that over time. Three questions and I'll be quiet. Oh my gosh. <laughs> uh, do, you, do you work with them or teach them to you know, practice these uh, techniques at certain times or events that occur to them during the day to try to help manage or get a, get a, handle, <clears throat> me, get a handle on what's happening to them? Yeah, so many of the interventions are targeted towards craving um, or urge surfing um, is, is one of the interventions, the, kind of the mindfulness interventions that people are taught. Um, oftentimes people's triggers are really around stress events also, and, and the idea is that if you practice mindfulness in the middle of a stress event, it is not always that helpful, but to bring your baseline stress down then stress events won't actually be as stressful when you do encounter them, which they will continue to encounter them. It's not like mindfulness-based relapse prevention is going to take away stress. It's going to enable people to respond to them more, respond to stress more effectively. 
Yeah, in essence, it would allow them to stop and pay attention and realize it and be able to have a better coping mechanism. Four questions. Uh. I like the number four. And then I will, you can turn off my mic. Is breathing or breathing exercises part of the mindfulness training that you uh, give the subjects? Yes. Um, so breathing is one of the grounding skills that is one of the most basic skills taught at the beginning of mindfulness because sometimes it's easier for people to focus on something than not focus on something. Um, and so um, most people can focus on their breathing and, and it actually helps them um, get grounded and um, be self-aware. Um, and so there are kind of body scans that people do, so you take them up through their toes to their head, or there are specifically breathing meditations that people can do. And there's so much on the internet now, so people have all kinds of access to tools on the internet through apps and, and such. So maybe a little early, but I'm wondering how it's going and what sort of feedback you're getting from participants and how they feel it's helping them as they try to seek long-term recovery. You know, we have quantitative data that we could talk about if you want. And we also are collecting uh, exit interview survey data. And I think one of the things that we've gotten are people are like, this should be longer. Okay. You know, we're doing it for 24 weeks. In essence, what we've done is we've taken the standard time frame and just fit it within a naturalistic setting. And some people don't think the dose they would like to continue. And they're like, wait, I have to go back to my group. Right. <laughs> um, so we're getting that uh, sort of feedback, which is very positive. Um, from a qualitative perspective. Um, we're also seeing, you know, in the preliminary data, we're seeing people come down from clinical levels of depression and anxiety uh, to below clinical levels uh, based on our, our diagnostic tools, which is super exciting right. uh, for folks. Now, the people that are self-selecting are a little bit higher, not, statistic, not statistically higher, but have a higher anxiety and depression, which is why they're selecting, self-selecting, which is why we have the design, uh, quasi-experimental design, because we just felt that would be the best way to go. The other thing we're observing is um, craving. And in our pilot work, we did not see any differences in craving. And now with a longer time frame, we're out to 36 weeks. Um, or 12 weeks post-intervention, we're really seeing differences uh, in craving coming down, which is very exciting for us. Um, that was one of the uh, pieces of feedback when we were uh, submitting our work initially for publication was that we didn't see any differences in craving, and some of the reviewers were like, well, this is you would expect to see some of this a longer time frame, and now we're seeing that. So that's exciting for us. And do the participants in your intervention tend to stick with the mindfulness practice after it's done? So do you follow up with them to see if it's become a normal part of their everyday practice and whether they're sticking with the, the techniques and routines that you've taught them? Um, they do. So we follow them for 12 weeks after. So we have a post-intervention uh, survey that we administer, and at that point we also do the exit interview. And um, they struggle. They struggle to find the time, but they, they really have a new sense of what's possible. One of the, one of the interesting, um, I think, findings is that when we, we also have a mindfulness um, evaluative survey and, and we've currently, there's no difference between the control group and the intervention group on their mindfulness rating. And, and my interpretation of that is actually that people have become aware of what they don't know 
Whereas the people who aren't in the mindfulness studio is like, yeah, I do mindfulness. I'm like mindful, you know, whatever that is. They don't really understand what it is. And then they, for the people who are in the intervention, they're like, oh my gosh, this mindfulness stuff is really hard. And they get better at it, but they have a completely understand, different understanding of what it is. So they know what they don't know. Right. Um, and they begin to learn that skill. So you're picking up on uh, there's no change because you have one group that's just sort of naive to the experience. Another group is very aware of the fact that it, they may not be fully experiencing uh, the things around them in the day. I will say this, you know, um, as Laura, Laura's absolutely right in saying, we're not seeing any significant differences between our groups in overall mindfulness. That's when we just look at our instrument as a single type of mindfulness construct. However, there's five constructs of mindfulness. And I can't say with any definitive way right now because it's still very preliminary. And I just did some of the analyses yesterday because we're starting to roll out some of our work and such. Um, but we are seeing some differences in the individual constructs. So, for example, in being non-reactive or non-judgment, non-judgmental or observing or awareness. Um, so even though we're not seeing an overall difference, which is sort of surprising to us, but we are seeing some differences within those individual constructs in, in movement in the hypothesized direction <clears throat> with both groups, really. <laughs> Which will help you tailor it in the future, perhaps. Absolutely. So where do you see this going? What's the hope for this? So my hope is to have this be a regular part of our clinic experience and that people can choose to go into a mindfulness group and that we have multiple groups that they could go into. Um, and that we are also... at in behavioral medicine, we're part of a hub-and-spoke model where we are um, expanding medication-assisted treatment throughout the state and that we can also share um, this, this intervention with the places that we're training to do medication-assisted treatment. So one of the things that we often hear about, particularly in places like Appalachia and West Virginia, when you talk about mental health providers, we just don't have enough trained clinicians who specialize in things like CBT or just mental health care in general. Is this likely to face the same sort of barriers and limitations, the mindfulness approach, if it's something that becomes widespread and there's an attempt to adopt, are we, are we likely to see a shortage in people who can provide training? Possibly, although the dream is we have some funding to expand treatment around the state and we could roll this into those opportunities so that we could have people on the grants who could then train people at locations all over the state to do mindfulness-based relapse prevention. Yeah, I was wondering about the requirements for training you know, or to be a train-the-trainer model, right? So you can train other people to expand your workforce. It seems one of the attractive things about mindfulness is that uh, it, it, you, it is possible to train maybe a broader group of people to administer the intervention yep. without less the need for long-term graduate education or specialized training, right? So from a pragmatic perspective, there might be great utility uh, for rural regions where this model could spread a little more easily than some others. Absolutely. All right, Megan, we're not going to let you get out of here without speaking. Oh, I know. <laughs> yeah. So Megan's a graduate student. So what's your role been? How's your experience? Um, it's been great. It's been a huge learning experience for me. This is my first real like intervention that I've been a part of. Um, I Most of the work that I do is usually data collection, recruitment, entering the data into the system so that they, they can figure out if it's working or not. <laughs> graduate student tasks. Yes, yeah, yeah. exactly. We, we love graduate students. Exactly. Yes. So, I, I mean, I've learned a lot by just going into the clinics. I've sat in on some of the mindfulness um, sessions. I've sat through some of the recordings, so I've got an understanding of what it is and how they teach it. And so that's been a great experience for me. And is this something you'll carry forward through your graduate studies and beyond? Um, I think so, yeah. yeah. 
I mean, I'm definitely practicing it more at home personally. Um, so I, I really like mindfulness and how that helps. It can help you with basically any issue. <laughs> if you just like focus and calm down and just become aware of yourself. So yeah, I think that's something I want to carry on. Excellent. I just wanted yeah. to give a shout out to Laurel Falkenberry too, because she is our therapist who runs the groups and she is, she has a lot of experience in, in not necessarily mindfulness-based relapse prevention, but mindfulness. She once shared with me that her mother um, took her to her first transcendental meditation when she was 16. Um, so she's been doing this a long time and she is an amazing clinician um, and the, the patients love her. She does a great job. I just have to thank you. That was our first on-air shout out. We haven't had a shout-out yet. Yeah. I figured that happened all the time. Oh, no. no you, you've broken the ice now. Everybody's going to be shouting out. So <laughs> shout-out to my peeps back in Boca. Yeah, so um, I think that's it. Unless, What are some final thoughts from you all? Anything you want us to know about the study or your work or anything else that we want to take away from this? No, we're just grateful to have the opportunity from CDC to uh, actually engage in this work based on our pilot work. I'm glad they put some faith into us to to uh, see our results, preliminary results is promising to allow us to do a little bit more sophisticated um, and greater recruitment to really investigate this a little bit more deeply. You're sort of like a NASCAR driver when you get out of the car. I'd like to thank Coca-Cola and good. I, I need like, a Mountain Dew hat or something. Yes. I'd like to give a shout out to CDC. Yeah, thanks, for, <laughs> thanks for the money. Thank you, CDC. Yeah. Laura, Megan, anything? Any, any other shout outs or pitches? I'm certainly just excited to spread um, information about what mindfulness really is and, and what it is not because it's, it's all over the press and I think there's a yeah. lot of mis, misconceptions about what it is. Um, and as Megan was saying, it can help with almost anything. Uh, which is unusual, I think, with an intervention. And we're hoping that we it can help uh, certainly reduce overdose deaths and provide treatment to people in West Virginia. I think one thing, sorry, one last thing I, I do want to, um, you know, I think there's also the misconception that this is a panacea. And it's not a panacea. And I think one of the interesting questions going forward is when we think about precision medicine is, who does this ideally work right. for best and who does it not? Because it's not for everybody. So I think that's one of the lingering questions that our research team eventually down the line would like to help form um, some of the research base for making those decisions. So I think it's very frontier science. No, I absolutely agree. And something that we, we focus on here as well is trying to find the right solution for the right person, knowing that it's not going to work for everybody. And maybe this population who's looking for something new with co-occurring uh, other mental health disorders is, is a great place to start. But absolutely agree, uh, refine it as you move forward. You know, I would like to see one thing come out of this. I would like uh, Dr. Zulik to produce some uh, meditation uh, mindful tapes because you have a smooth, sexy voice <laughs> that I listened to last weekend when you let us do some exercises. So uh, you could be very effective. <laughs> Well, thank you very much. <laughs> you're not just smooth, you're sexy. So congratulations there. Yeah. All right. Yes. <laughs> I think Dr. Lander wanted to speak. Yeah. You done? Well, yes, I'm done. Yeah, it, okay. I'm just thinking about Dr. Zillick's voice in my head. <laughs> well, this feels like a really great place to close. So thank you all for coming in today and for speaking with us. Excuse me. I'd like to thank our listeners and remind people that help for WVU <clears throat> excuse me, is a 24-hour helpline for West Virginians who need help with addiction or mental illness. Call 844-HELP-4WV, text 844-435-7498, or 
or visit them online at help4wv.com. Uh, thank you again for tuning in to hear our conversation with Keith Zulik, uh, Laura Lander, and Megan Toscano. If you have any questions or comments, make sure you share them with us on Twitter or Facebook using a number symbol, ask, just kidding, hashtag AskWVUICRC. Again, that's hashtag AskWVUICRC. It was a number symbol on a rotary phone, <laughs> right? Yeah. <laughs> We hope that this conversation has helped you think about mindfulness and substance abuse disorder in a new way. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Goodbye for your friends at Oomph. We make injury control cool.